Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and always informative weekly blog. There you'll read, learn, and may comment about her life as a 21st century wife, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. My guest today is someone that has been in the news a lot lately. Arkansas's state senator, Miss Joyce Elliott, who is running for Congress against incumbent U.S. Representative Mr. French Hill. In Stephanie Smittle's Arkansas Times article titled, From Willisville to Washington, Senator Joyce Elliott is ready to school Congress. Stephanie writes, if elected, Joyce Elliott will be the first black lawmaker Arkansas has ever sent to Congress. Joyce, is that right? Yes, that is right. Wow. Uh, a lot of people are confused. Uh, they are confused by it because during Reconstruction, there were uh, black lawmakers in the state. But we're the only one of our Confederate, you know, former Confederate states that's not done so. That well, is right. I was surprised to hear that. That's why I cited it as her, because I thought, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> yeah, that clever Arkansas Times title is a play on words for Miss Elliott's previous career as a high school teacher. And though race may arguably no longer matter at getting ahead in America, for we just had a black president, the highest office in the land, it has played a large role in Miss Elliott's life. Young Joyce was born in a small Arkansas town in the 1950s and schooled during the height of our country's desegregation. Feeling it her duty, though hard, she and her sister Caroline acquiesced and volunteered to be the token black students at somewhat at a somewhat hostile and all-white high school. This experience, along with coming of age during John F. Kennedy's term as president, instilled a hopeful, thoughtful life of duty, service, education for all, and gave Miss Elliott the toughness that is needed in today's politics. It is with great pleasure to welcome to the table the smart, civic-minded, and as her friends and colleagues call her, the workhorse, Miss Joyce Elliott. All right, thank you so much for having me. Uh, um, it's a real pleasure, I know, to be here, and I'm looking forward to our talk. Thank you very much, Joyce, for coming. I want to tell everybody that's listening that usually we meet in the studio together with my guests, and you and I had planned to do that. But everybody at the state capitol, I believe it was, was exposed to COVID, and everyone is quarantining. So you and I are doing a radio phone-in call, and we're not actually together live, and we're going to try to not talk over each other. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, I want to start off by saying, well, it's a good thing you're tough. Because just this week, the ads against you from your opponent, or maybe I should rightly say from the Republican Party, have been vicious. How do you handle that? It has been surprisingly vicious because I just never knew French Hill as this person. And um, and it's it's uh, it kind of goes back and much of what you uh, said in the introduction for me. Because when I chose to remain at a school where we were told to our faces, the the kids, there, there were three or four other families were, that were at the school. And after we had 
integrated the school. We were told that we could go back to our old black school, and uh, we were expected to do so. And I just, you know, out of some little voice in me just telling me, no, it is not the right thing to do, that somebody had to take a stand. So here we were in the midst of uh, this room, and, and these men are telling us we can go back. And I just worded out, I'm not going, and immediately became as scared as heck and hot all over because um, this little voice inside me was causing me to take a stand about something I thought was wrong. Uh, and so that's where I got my toughness, I guess, for even taking some of the things that are happening now. Because being that 15-year-old girl and integrating the school was not easy by any stretch of the imagination. And I might remind you, we actually started early uh, compared to most schools in our state. Because, you know, after Hoxie and uh, Charleston and uh, Central High, uh, most other people just waited around for a while. And this was 1966 when we started. And most of the schools didn't really get serious about integrating until the 70s. I didn't realize that, that, that there was this big gap between the 1957 Central High desegregation and then these smaller towns waiting five, six, seven yeah. years before they integrated. You also, in making that decision, gave up your valedictorian position. You were slated to be the valedictorian of Oak Grove High School, a mostly black school. And when you chose to go to Willisville High and be a part of this uh, integration, you lost Mm -hmm. scholarships. You lost your valedictorian status. I did. And we, like a lot of people, it was not unusual. We were poor. We grew up in Willisville, Arkansas, population 152, down in the southwest. (laughs) Uh, But the one thing I wanted to do, I really wanted to go to college. And, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on. So I I knew about the world out there. And I knew the way that I could get into that world was, I figured, was through an education. And like a lot of other people, um, you know, who uh, had gone to the school that I went to, growth, um, you got a scholarship to uh, to an HBCU. In this case, it would have been uh, UAPB. Um, and when I went to that school, I was, you know, it became very evident that, uh, early on that I was not going to be the valedictorian. And not only was I not going to be, Terry, I was slated to make sure that I'm not, I did not become the valedictorian. Uh, those same two men who met with us to tell us to go back to school had a private meeting with me, had my um, transcript, and it was the first time I'd ever had any kind of reaction to being a good student and having good grades that was not positive. And they questioned my my transcript and asked where I got those grades and assured me, you would not get these here. And I didn't know, this is a long story, but I want to make it short. I didn't know at the same time, the young man who was there to be the, who was the punitive or the assumed valedictorian um, had been told that, had been brought into that meeting and told that I had really good grades. And if he wanted to be the valedictorian, he needed to do something about, you know, George Elliott. So I guess you're used to competition. <laughs> the other thing I'm used to, too, is not holding a grudge. Because at this point, he and I had reconciled many years ago. And that, that really became, you know, one of my finest examples of bringing people together. Because, I, I, you know, I just, since I was that 15-year-old, I just knew there had to be a better way. So I've just kind of been on this unity tour throughout my whole life. And that's why, you know, at the legislature, and, and they'll tell you, Democrat or Republican, I work with everybody. 
because I, I, I don't think we have to give in to Washington has to be this way or is this way. Uh, we can, you know, we can do better than this. It's hard work. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I was lucky enough to get to interview uh, Sybil Hampton, who was the second class to integrate Central High School, and she said that it took a she went through a year of vetting and interviews to make sure that she was tough enough, that she was a tough enough teenager to handle the hostile environment at Central High School. Did you have to go through anything like that? I didn't go through any kind of vetting because um, decisions were made that I don't even know all of the background and how they were made because in the, in, in uh, Nevada County, County was where I was. There was an upper, uh, the upper part in Prescott, there was an all-black school there, and I was in the lower part, and um, there was an all-black school in, in Roston, Arkansas, is where the place was. And when we were ordered to integrate, I guess the school board or whoever just decided that these five or six families, because there were about five all-white schools, these five or six families will go to this school and this five or six will go to that school until all of the um, all-white schools were integrated with a few black students. Um, and not a single white student had to move or do anything. Right. Uh, and not a single white student was sent to the previously all-black school that was still there. And, and, and that inspired me about, you know, being a public school teacher. At an early age, you read the newspaper. You read about President yeah. JFK. How did reading about him affect yeah. your view of the world? My grandmother was an avid reader of the newspaper. And I and, and keep in mind, I'm in southwest Arkansas. We're close to Louisiana and we're getting Louisiana politics. And you had to be out of your mind not to be interested in those stories. And so for the for the one thing, it was just, you know, it was compelling. Um, and the rest of my members of my family read the comics, and I just I just want the news stories. But this was at a time, you know, when John F. Kennedy was running for office. Uh, there was lots and lots of coverage, you know, during that time, and I read every bit of it. And the thing that inspired me about it more than anything, for the first time ever, I heard my elders around me talk out loud about politics and talk out loud about voting um, because I. Every time I've heard them talking about voting, I, I would hear the term poll taxes, but I, I didn't know what it meant. But they started saying it out loud, and I realized that this man was something special to people. And the first time I realized somebody in politics could give somebody hope, because they thought life was going to be much, much better because just one man was being elected. And that's kind of when I got the political bug at the one of these days, I don't care what this is, I'm going to do this. How old were and, you? you know, I was about nine or ten. What? That, that, yeah. yeah. What, what's a poll tax? And I, was, I knew when they were whispering about it. They were, they, I knew the poll tax meant something that was not pleasant, uh, and I knew they had to pay for it. But the poll tax literally meant you had to buy this piece of paper, you know, to present when you went to vote. Um, it was one of the ways of suppressing the vote because so many people did not have that 50 cents or uh, 15 cents or whatever it took. But you had to go even worse than that. You had to go someplace that was not where you would get questioned about. Why do you need it? Why, why do you need, uh, you know, a piece of paper or a poll? You had to buy a piece yeah. of paper 
to vote? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's what was called a, a pass. I got gotcha. you. You had to have that piece of paper to present, yeah. Uh, this is a great place yeah. to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Arkansas Senator Miss Joyce Elliott, who's running for U.S. Representative in Arkansas's 2nd Congressional District against incumbent Mr. French Hill. Still to come, how does being a teacher prepare you for politics? What voted, What motivated Miss Elliott to run for office? And what it's like to be a kidney donor to her sister. And if we have time, I'm going to ask her about her fashion sense, her signature hairstyle, and her jewelry. We'll be back after the break. Flagandbanner.com's Brave Magazine. Proud to underwrite up in your business with Carrie McCoy. Weekly interviews that offer a mentoring platform for those with an entrepreneurial spirit and encouraging listeners to press forward when facing failure. In other words, be brave. Brave Magazine is distributed twice a year, and our goal is to inspire you to celebrate your own bravery and recognize it in others. Sign up for your free subscription at flagandbanner.com. The Department of Arkansas Heritage recognized our magazine by requesting all past and future editions of Brave be sent to the Arkansas State Archives for preservation. Advertising opportunities and free subscriptions available at flagandbanner.com. You're listening to Up in Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Arkansas Senator Ms. Joyce Elliott, who's running for U.S. Representative in Arkansas's 2nd Congressional District against incumbent Mr. French Hill. Before the break, we talked about Joyce Elliott being a trendsetter, a goal setter. She was one of the first... Uh, kids to uh high school kids to highly motivated highly motivated (laughs) she started reading the paper when she was nine years old and wanted to go into politics she was she was uh she integrated her school in uh, willisville arkansas and uh now we're going to talk about her roots in arkansas miss elliott your uncle wanted to go wanted you to go out of state to college but you didn't you uh taught in boston texas eventually you did follow your husband's career to tampa florida in the mid-70s you came back to teach in el dorado arkansas and then eventually ended up teaching 20 years at joe t robinson in little rock you are smart have done a lot could probably do anything you wanted to do i mean what nine-year-old reads a newspaper but after such a tumultuous (laughs) high school experience you chose teaching as a profession, as your profession. Why would you want to go back to a place that was so tough? Because I knew it shouldn't be that tough, especially for kids. Um, and one of the things that, my, you know, as I indicated earlier, I didn't have money to go to college, and I'd lost that scholarship, so I had to figure out a way to work and pay for college and so forth. Um, and when my, when my uncle, you know, that, was, that was hard to turn down. Um, he was the one in the family who had done well. And I'll tell you, the, the thing that made it the hardest of all is when he said, if you'll just come to Michigan and go to school, I'll buy your car. We never even had a car <laughs> in our family. I mean, <laughs> but at any rate, what I had determined, uh, you know, for me, Dr. King and all he was doing and so many civil rights workers, that was a real thing for me. Uh, I mean, I, I, I read about these people in real time. I never saw him, you know, um, but I read about the things that were happening in real time, and I could see the same things that he was talking about and that, that we'd see on in the newspaper and occasionally on the TV if I was in somebody else's home. Um, and I... Did, I just knew what I was supposed to do to, to make my contribution, and I'm not critical of it. I never judged it. You know, my sister left Arkansas. Others left Arkansas. But my thinking was somebody has to stay here and take a stand to change this, and if I don't do it, you know, who's going to do it? 
And so that's why I decided to stay and not, I was never one to ask others to do what I want to do if I can. And my thinking was, what if I just went off to Atlanta or to Dallas or Chicago where things, not that they were perfect, but where things are already in good shape, so to speak. And I couldn't figure out what my contribution was going to be there. And I just knew it needed to be right here in the red dirt of South Arkansas or in Arkansas, period. In the red dirt. That's why why I think. You taught for 30 years, and you, you, did you teach the same subject, uh, literature, the whole time? I taught literature, and, and I taught speech and communication, huh? uh, part of which included speech correction. Uh, and uh, I loved it. I loved my teaching career. I taught senior high students, and that was, you know, as they say, that was my jam. Uh, I was not good, you know, with the smaller kids. I knew that. But I wanted to teach high school. You had some pretty uh, impressive students you taught that grew up to do some pretty good things representative johnny uh, roebuck representative frederick love city manager bruce moore those were all your students yeah representative love was one of my students andy davis was one of my students um representative andy davis and as as a matter of fact they were i called them my bipartisan students because one was a democrat one was a republican (laughs) which was just great one was white one was white but I think that was just so symbolic of the way I lived my life. And when I taught, you know, kids, I always tried to get them to think for themselves, challenge, but think for yourself. And to get an opportunity, think about this, to serve with two of my former students. That was really, that's really special. And, of course, Bruce Moore was one of my students as well. And many other people, you know, right here in the, you know, in, in the area. But, yeah, when you teach that long, you start seeing your students pretty quickly. That's a, that's a great testament to your ability to teach. While teaching, some of the things you worked on, you were co-lead in the Classroom Teachers Associate, Association to get students from El Dorado access to advanced placement courses. You developed a teacher-to-teacher development workshop. You collaborated on legislation that helped college students retain credits when transferring institution and held universities accountable for low graduation rates. And you advocated Mm -hmm. for 1987 National Board for Professional Teaching Standards. This is a volunteer teacher certificate with financial incentive. And then you took a two-year hiatus to serve as the president of Pulaski County National Education Association. Some of your co-workers have said they are surprised you didn't go into the to work in the public sector sooner. How did being a teacher prepare you for going into that service, and why did you stay a teacher for 30 years along with all that other you did? One, because every year, I mean, every day, you walk into the classroom and you know you're going to make a difference, you know, unless you're just a you know, vegetable or something. You, you know you are. And it was what I wanted to do from the bottom of my heart, and, and, and it just was so rewarding. And I loved being around those students, and, and it just, just kept me energized all the time, and the learning was so fantastic. But the one thing that's really true is I always had a very diverse group of students. And when you think about teaching and being prepared to go into the, to the public sector, especially as a legislator, there, there are so many parallels here. I tell all teachers, if you have really done a good job of teaching, I promise you, you're prepared for the legislature. Because what you have to do is work with all kind of um, attitudes, all kind, all kind of, uh, you know, uh, parents. Uh, it's, it's a very diverse place where not everybody's on the same page all the time, literally. 
And you have to figure out a way to be that person to work with all those kids, no matter what their income was, no matter what their color was, no matter you know what their learning styles were. And that is the thing that really has helped me so much in the legislature, because we have the same kind of thing, except I'd always tell my legislative friends, you know, the kids you know, caught on a whole lot better into let's get together, work together the way things are some now. But uh, because I did that, it was being a bipartisan working legislator, legislator just came, that just came naturally for me. Um, and, you know, when even when I was in the legislature, you know, I worked with Governor Huckabee, I worked with Governor Beebe, um, and it was not ever an issue of whether or not I was going to work with somebody just because they were a Democrat, or I'm not going to work with somebody because they're Republican, because I had taught all those different kind of things. How do you um, feel about the current I, changes to our public and private schools in Arkansas right now? I've seen you on TV, even though you and I are not personal acquaintances. I've seen you on TV forever, and I've seen you at some press conferences, yeah. and I heard you say, you may punish Little Rock, and I'm quoting, I think, you may punish Little Rock by closing schools and taking over the district, but five or ten years from now, what's going to be different if we are not looking at the source from which all the problems come from? What is wrong right now with the Arkansas schools? Well, what I was referring to then is that the State Board of Education had taken over the schools because of test scores. And uh, that is, I, I know a lot of people think that makes sense, but it doesn't because you don't learn that much in a test score. But as long as we can predict, and these are the things I'm talking about that we don't pay attention to, as long as we can predict that a child is probably going to have a low test score or not do as well as you or I might think they should because of where they live in this city, as long as that is the case, or as long as their income determines uh, what they're going to be making on that test score and the, and the opportunities they have, if we don't address these kind of things, what I was referring to, rather than taking what I think is the, is the lazy way out and just saying it's going to be determined on the test score. Because at the same time, the state board, I guess, thought they were doing well. What they did was destabilize communities by closing schools. Uh, and it's a, and it was a, I, I was never able to... Um, to my satisfaction, at least get people to understand, you are making a judgment based on based on one simple thing. And on the one hand, you say you kind of know why it's that way because of all the inequities. But we are not addressing the inequities. We are addressing the outcome. Oh, I without, agree. Without thinking about changing changing the input yeah i think that's the way everybody solves problems is they look at the end results and they start trying to fix the problem that's at the right. end instead of going to the source that's of the problem so these kids right. I, when i read that about you i thought oh we have the same philosophy that's right so dyslexia, yeah. I noticed you got testing for dyslexia. I'm dyslexic, and uh, I could never have had a good okay. test score, no matter what. I mean, just the right. idea of sitting down and they hand you the test, I broke out into a cold sweat because you were timed. Um, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. So I saw you. you I saw you enacted, and maybe with uh, Governor Huckabee, you did this. I'm not sure, but enacted something for dyslexia kids. Is that right? Uh, that was with, that was with Governor Hutchinson, actually. Yeah, yeah, Governor Hutchinson. Um, yeah, because when I taught all those years, I I had students that there was nothing wrong with their brains, and I would see them struggle and struggle, and I did not know what to do to help them except you know try to take time to do things verbally and so forth, you know, which which was in a, which was not sustainable, and it just has it just bothered me so much that. 
I figured it was probably dyslexia, some other kind of reading problem, obviously. Uh, but when I got a chance to do the research and, and, and had a chance in the legislature to do something about it, I did. Uh, so in 2011, was the first time I introduced the bill, was not successful in 20, uh, 2011 uh, because it just took a whole lot more research I needed to do and creating more and more allies. And one of the allies that I ended up working with was Johnny Key, who is now, you know, the um, Secretary of Education. And once again, it was me as a Democrat, him as a Republican, but we both cared about this. And every, you know, it, it just wasn't. Uh, a Democratic-Republican issue, and because when we passed it in the Senate, it passed with no dissenting votes, and so it has changed the lives of you know hundreds, I would guess, even thousands of kids in our state now, and it's one of the pieces of legislation that's being looked at across the country for what we did to address that. Well, issue. congratulations! How frustrating it's- is it? To have to start in 2011, and here it is 2019 before you actually get something done. That would drive me crazy. Yes. Yeah. And that's one of the things, too. That's one of the things I've really got from teaching as having the patience of Job. Uh, because you don't, you cannot, like if I had a kid who was struggling because they didn't get it the first time, I had to go back and go back and go back again. So it's just a skill I developed. And because um, I, I just almost never, you know, when I approach legislation, to me, it, it's, it needs to be something profoundly important. And if I have to keep working at it, I will keep working at it. Um, what, was there something that just happened one day around 2000 and uh, I think it was 2000 when you first ran for office, around the year 2000 where you just thought, okay, it's time for me to run for a public office now was there some uh, defining moment well, actually, yeah because you know like i said when i was when i was nine or ten years old in the fourth grade i remember getting to fourth grade during that time um when i knew for sure i wanted to do this um i was actually waiting for my son to finish high school and my son finished high school in 1998 and it would be two years later before there would be um, I would have an opportunity to run. But as soon as those two years were over, I, I, this is just the time. It was not a one-off thing. It was something I always knew I was committed to doing. You know, speaking of, patience. <laughs> yes. Your first two terms, you taught while you were also a representative of your first two terms. And then... I did. I did. Because it was, you know... Um, the pay was just so low. I had to keep teaching, and um, and when I when I went to the legislature, I had to take lead without pay, and you know it was just the living paycheck to paycheck. I felt like I was back in my childhood days. It was that hard, and so when the session was over, I had to go back to teaching. But this was a, this was a, the time that um, we also got into all of the Lakeview discussions. And um, that started to consume a whole lot of all of our time. The Lakeview desegregation case that uh, required that the courts found us, found the state um, out of compliance with the Constitution to make sure all kids had, had a, uh, an equitable and efficient education. That's what Judge Bob Brown was talking about on our interview two weeks ago that oh, he yeah. created yeah. legislature about. Yeah. So speaking about your yeah. unity tour, how your life has been a unity tour, part of your campaigning after school was with your ex-husband. Bill Barnes. I was, I, He's in your corner. I was, 
would, I would go to school and work my day, and I would campaign in the afternoon. And um, the guys that were running, there were four guys, I think, originally, then it ended up being three. And I think they had a little bit more time, and I was just so determined because I remember what it felt like being a girl and not getting to I was a good athlete. I did not get into play basketball. I got a basketball scholarship when I got out of high school because then we didn't have Title IX. And so I, I just thought, I will not, I will work as hard as I must, but I will not be uh, the person who turns about because I've got three guys I've got to work against. <laughs> Let's take another quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Arkansas Senator Miss Joyce Elliott, who is running for the U.S. Representative in Arkansas's 2nd Congressional District against incumbent Mr. French Hill. Still to come, if elected, her plans for Congress. What does she dream about doing? And what are her policies when we come? back. The history of flag and banner has included lots of technological advances, going from the store to the website to podcasts to publishing a biannual magazine and blogging too. But nothing gets the attention of a customer like free stuff. And right now you can stay informed about Carrie McCoy's upcoming guests on Up In Your Business half-staff notifications, flag etiquette and holidays, and so much more by simply going to flagandbanner.com. Just click on that free stuff button. It's right at the top of the page. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Arkansas Senator Miss Joyce Elliott, who is running for U.S. Representative in Arkansas's 2nd Congressional District against incumbent Mr. French Hill. Joyce Elliott, you have many passions, and I believe, after talking to you for the last 30 minutes, education, child care, pre-K are among your top. And on your website, yes. you list policies, you have policy listings that you have uh posted your stance on and they are i'm just going to run through them real quick and then we'll talk about your favorite health care economy mm-hmm. veterans infrastructure education covid19 isn't that interesting that's a policy now that's interesting i thought wow <laughs> labor <laughs> agriculture environment and energy and public service reform i especially liked that one when i read it mm-hmm. but um which one are you of these are you the most passionate about and is the most important to you and why and i can probably guess but you tell me. Um, oh, we have a caller. Okay. Jeff, do you have a question for Joyce? Uh, yes. As a, you said that you're a car teacher. What do you stand on the 1619 project? As far as the 1619 project being something that's a, that's a worthy thing to do, I, I think it is absolutely something that we should take a look at. Because one of the things, I know it's been controversial with people because we were all taught our history in a particular way. And any time uh, our history gets added to, and you know, and, and I think it's valid that we should. We, we learn things that we need to learn to make sure we are learning all of our history. But we should learn all the perspectives and know um, more about our history than we knew today. What is the 1619? What is 16? Tell our listeners what that is. It's a project that went back to take a look at our history from 1619, the day the slaves arrived you know, here on the continent. And what it does is, if you think back to your history, I'll think back to my history, we didn't learn very much about what the perspectives were and what life was like for those people who were slaves and in, in turn did not learn much about people who were descended from those slaves in most of our history. And so it was a Pulitzer Prize winning, uh, it was a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, um, endeavor 
and it became very controversial uh, because it's a sensitive issue. Anytime you talk about race, and so many times, you know, we've been told all of our lives we shouldn't talk about race, and well, why, you know, and because it's, it's too sensitive. But we don't learn about each other when we don't. And so it, it was a project to try to fill in some of those gaps, and for a lot of people, it, it really became, you know, a point of controversy. As a teacher and just as a person, I love learning about other people and being empathetic to other people's point of view. Um, let's talk about the, your passion. So healthcare, infrastructure, mm-hmm. education, yeah. COVID-19, labor, agriculture, environment, energy, public service reform. What do you think we should do about education and pre-K? I think we need to determine exactly how great we want to be in our country, period. And a a part of that to me means creating world-class educations everywhere for all kids, no matter where they live, and that they all have access to a world-class education. And that's so important to me because as we keep telling our students, you have to perform on a world stage. And it's, it's just wrong to keep telling them that and not prepare them in a way that they, they can perform in a, in a global world. And so the way I think it will matter in Congress is that we need to become, we need to very carefully um, become partners with the states. And so if a state wanted to create a world-class education system, then we need to work out ways so that Congress could work with those states because it's too much to ask of states alone. I think that is just so crucial. And a part of that world-class education means getting a great start in the early years, because right now in Arkansas, we have a a good pre-K system that we're not funding as we should. But, in, but uh, it is something that we need, need to take a look at, like the countries that are the highest performing countries in the world, the very first thing they do is make sure all kids are off to a great start so that you cannot determine where they live and determine what their educational outcomes are going to be. And as a part of that, with pre-K through K-12, um, we need to be sure if, if a student you know, uh, wants to get a college education, we need to make sure that there is a way for them to do it. And it, it, you know, there's, there's, there's a way for you to do it that is not going to be so onerous. Uh, but if we are going to have you know, a world-class country and maintain it, our education system needs to be thought about you know, as, as pre-K all the way through college. And this harkens back to going to the source of a problem. We always want to go like, to the end yep. results and go, why are these kids not yep. going to college? And why are we not getting good jobs? And why is the unemployment right. rate high? Well, we're yep. addressing the problem <laughs> at the end right. rather than starting at the at very the beginning. Yes, and we almost end up punishing people because we didn't start at the beginning. And because uh, the other, the, the last part of that world-class system is the school system to make sure, uh, in addition to higher ed, as we normally think about it, we should have world-class uh, career tech systems as well. That's what these other countries are doing. And call, you know, a, a four-year degree is not considered better than a, a career tech degree. And sometimes, many times, even these in these other systems, um, they go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who might uh, you know, a four-year degree might decide there's something over in the career tech side I'd like to do. And it's not thought of as a two-tier system in these other countries. But we tend to think about career tech. Uh, oh, some people are just good with their hands. That's not what career tech is. 
uh, you, you're good with your brains, too, and I always hate it when I hear it described that way. I think you could call me a graduate of career tech. I went to a Votech school, and it was one of the yeah. best educations I've ever got. Let's talk about public service rep- reform. Yeah. I like the things yeah. you said about public service reform. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the things that is so difficult to do, you know, is to make sure, you know, we have all these ideas, and, you know, among the things about the revolving door that allows, you know, uh, Congress to just come right out and be lobbyists when they, they retire, I think there just has to be, there needs to be some time between those two things where it's really significant because when you do that, if you've been a congressperson, you're just automatically, you, you're going to have some authority that you would not have had if you just had kind of a cooling off period. And I think that's really important. And if, and for the, um, I think we just need to eliminate dark money, uh, dark money. Um, these groups that lobby Congress, if, we're, if you're going to lobby Congress, it just needs to be, it needs to be transparent. Um, everybody needs to know what's going to the members of Congress. But as long as it's dark money, you don't know who's influencing whom, or at least trying. And, um, and, and the other thing I'm remembering is lobbyist activities for disclosure. And so many lobbyists, so many things they do are, are not disclosed, and we don't have an apparatus to make sure we know what lobbyists are doing in many cases. To, I mean, to isn't a lobbyist that. just somebody who bribes the Senate? I don't get that at all. Why that's legal? The way it came about, actually, was, you know, there are people who wanted to have some influence, especially for big corporations. Not, generally not for just average people like us. <laughs> and and so this there were the well-to-do folks, the big you know barons you know uh, who went to Washington and they I think it was the, it might have been I think it was the Willard Hotel where uh, a lot of the meetings took place is a very swanky hotel um, and these folks literally hung out in the lobby and waited for the Congress people to emerge from their meetings. And that's how they got to be called lobbyists. Oh, they were influencers. What? In the lobby, yeah. hung out in the lobby. That's a good story. Yeah. Uh, I just want to take a minute and say you're listening to Up in Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Arkansas Senator Miss Joyce Elliott, who is running for the U.S. Representative in Arkansas Second Congressional District. All right, we we've only got ten minutes yeah. left, so I want I, this is just personal for me. You donated a kidney yeah. to your sister. Is it Gloria? Yes. Is Gloria her name? Yes. Tell us how that came about, and I want to know if there are lifestyle modifications that have to be made after such a procedure. Uh-huh. And that's such a good question, that last part, because people always wonder about that. But my sister, who was the youngest of our five girls, um, she uh, we didn't have any particular reason. We don't know what happened, but uh, she uh, was just, her kidneys were just attacked by a very aggressive uh, kidney disease and it has a big long name but I don't even remember and they tried very hard you know to treat it but it was there was no reversing it and so she was on di- dialysis for a while for about um, almost well yeah a year just a little bit over a year and um, so when and we have a large family and all of us got tested um, and it's as it turned out, you know, we were all a match. It was just uncanny. But it turns out I was the, the perfect match because I was the healthiest of everybody. <laughs> I didn't smoke. I was a runner, you know, who ate good food and whatnot. 
so when all of us met and found out, you know, we were, you know, a, a, a decent match, that we had a discussion. And so everybody agreed, and this will surprise you, everybody agreed, Joyce, since you have the, the best lifestyle and you're the healthiest and so forth, we all think it should be you. Oh, yeah, of course you do, so it won't be you. But <laughs> it was not. <laughs> and, but it was, you know, because, you know, I love my sister, and it was not a big deal to do it because I talked with doctors, we studied it and not studied it and all that, and so I, I knew it would not endanger my health. But, um, so um, I decided to do it, and we, the day we had the surgery, um, my sister actually got up and walked into my room where we were in different rooms, and she um, walked into my room, and I said, what are you doing up walking around? I said, oh, my, my kidney's already working, and I'm still lying there in the bed because I'm cut from here to here. <laughs> and so it, it was very successful right away. And this was the same time, too, by the way, when I was running for office and I was still teaching. And I went back to school that year. This, uh, the surgery, surgery was in um, late July, uh, no, mid-July, because um, um, I went back to school pretty early in uh, August. And, um, you know, it was almost, I, I didn't, I had, I had uh, sick leave days. And I didn't have enough to use those days and still have some if something else happened, you know. You know, had I answered your questions of which one of these things is my biggest passion, right now it is healthcare. And I think at that point is when it became so incredibly um, a part of anything about having a, you know, a decent life. And so, um, and I'm a walking pre-existing condition because of that. And I have not. I have not had to change my lifestyle. People need to know it is perfectly safe to do. This is one of the things. I guess there's a reason we have two of them uh, because I, I have not, my life has just gone on as usual. You'd like to uh, expand the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you'd like to stand up to prescription and drug price gouging. You'd like yes. to make Washington work for small states with, with uh, COVID-19 relief and resources. You'd like to help with Medicaid expansion, do more for rural hospitals that are uninsured. That seems like a pretty important one. And protect Social Security and Medicare so that seniors don't lose affordable coverage. Yes, yeah. I had the, you know, we, one of the things about the Affordable Care Act was really what it did in rural areas and not closing hospitals. That was a big deal for a lot of folks. And, but I had had that experience, though, much earlier because in the Beta County where I grew up, I believe it was maybe 1996 or so. I wasn't still living there, but my, my mother was still there and my other family members, my sister and my brother and several cousins. But our hospital had closed a long time before the affordable health care came along. And we knew what, I knew what that meant. Um, and uh, so I know for people, oftentimes we assume transportation is available for people, and many times it's not. Um, and a part of any, um, I, I would guess you would say in any kind of community or town, um, they might even think about it as a county with any kind of high quality of life. You need to you need to have a hospital, and they're small. Yeah. They're not specialties, but they certainly are a step between you and critical care if you have to come to say UAMS or something. You know. So far in all of your accomplishments, and there are many. I mean, we've mm-hmm. scratched the surface. What are you most proud of, and what do you want think your legacy will be? Probably because it's so important to getting a great start, 
is, is, uh, is what we what I was able to do with to help with pre-K. Uh, because at the time, we need to get back to that. We were we had the number one pre-K in this nation. The number one right here in Arkansas. Really? And it just it yes, we did. We we ticked all the boxes for being number one because we started out that way. We started out very intentionally to make because I keep in mind this is when after we had been sued, you know, the late new case we talked about for adequacy for education. Pre K is not in the Constitution, but it's 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 uh, it's uh, grades one through twelve that is, and so we were spending all this money and making sure we met the court order. And it made no sense, we thought, if we don't invest in kids, you know, in the lower ages and to have them more ready when they get to, when they get to uh, K-12. And so it was one of the best investments we could have made, you know, in, in, in the humans that we depend on, you know, to make sure we have. What are we now? What is our, what is our pre-K rank now? Uh, well, the last time, I, I think we are, I know we're lower. I don't know the exact number, mm-hmm. uh, but the reason we are lowered is because we are not funding it as we should. And so, and we have um, uh, students who don't have access. What our goal was and what we were working toward was universal, not mandate, not a universal mandate, but universal access for every parent who wanted, you know, their kids. It's all the parents who wanted their kids to get that great start, especially if they were not able to do that. Because many parents are. What is this? Is this are. is your last question? When you're lying in bed dreaming, and I know you do because everybody does, and you see yourself in Washington and you're daydreaming about it, what does that daydream look like? It looks like a group of people who come from all different corners of this country who can put aside. Um, Whatever their what, whatever their leanings are, and they are working together to represent um, everybody in this country. That we are a mosaic of thought that can create the mosaic of all the different that can represent all the different kind of um, people in our mosaic in our country, no matter who they are. Because I if I really take it to heart, United States of America. So my dream is. That is exactly what we'll be working uh, toward to make sure everybody have you know, the opportunity to to uh, pursue, you know, happiness and, and be a united a united country. Thank you so much for taking time to visit with me. You are on the run. You are busy all the time. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us. Well, I, I thank you, too. And I, and I want to, I assume it's okay to, to ask people to go to joyfellia.com and learn more about our, our campaign. I would really appreciate that. Because I think the more you learn, the more you will Spoken like a a real teacher. In closing to our (laughs) listeners, I want to thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream. 